All right. Can you hear me? Everybody hear me okay? All right. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you for that. That is uh, That last phrase is the overview of what we believe about the end times. A lot of people have very complicated charts, uh, lots of timelines and details. That's our belief in the end times is that God wins. God wins. So that's the kind of the overview. We're going to spend some time, though, studying a little more of the details in the Bible. We're in this series in Daniel. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your uh, Bible to Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 8. We've been calling the series, What to Do When the World Falls Apart. Uh, so we have been looking at just the chaos in our society overall, in the world, all the unrest, all the craziness, all the unpredictability, all the uncertainty. We've said, well, what do we do when the world falls apart? What do we do as followers of Jesus? And we've got this great picture in the scriptures in Daniel. You see, God's people were thrown into exile. Um, their society was shattered, and they were placed into this culture where God's word was not honored, um, where they were minorities, where they were not respected. And it was their job to figure out, how can we remain faithful to Jesus? We started this series off looking at Jeremiah. Jeremiah gave very clear instructions in Jeremiah 29 about how to live when we're in exile. The New Testament echoes a lot of those same sentiments of what it looks like for us to be faithful in a crazy world. This week, we're calling it Faith versus Uncertainty. Faith versus Uncertainty. Daniel chapter 8, we're getting more of these weird apocalyptic visions Remember what apocalypse means. Apocalyptic is from a Greek word. It's, it's the Greek word for revelation. So the last book of our Bible, Revelation of the New Testament, that could be translated as just apocalypse. And that literally means in Greek, an unveiling. And so what God does often through the prophets and through these kind of weird sections of the Bible is he gives us what some might, I kind of think of it as like a music video. I grew up in the 80s. So I think of it as like this music video that, communicates in kind of like images and snapshots, right? And it communicates to the heart big ideas, big important things. Now, there are analytical details that we can break down, and we'll do some of that today. But again, the big idea is that God wins. The big idea is that Jesus is the one on the throne. And so when we're facing uncertainty, we can have faith because of the truth that God reveals, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I often find myself running into this problem when I have something broken that I need to fix. It just happened last week. My mother is elderly, and she had a shower that wasn't draining properly. So I thought, you know what? I've been wanting to buy one of these augers that you can buy. It's like a hand drill. You, you drill this cable down into the drain to clear the drain. I've been wanting to get one of those. They're kind of cheap. I'll just buy one, and I'll come fix your drain. I've seen other people use it, so I know how it's used, right? I thought I had this kind of intuitive knowledge of this is how it works. So I bought one. It's got a little crank, and you crank this little uh, long 25-foot cable down into a drain, and it just seems real simple, right? So I get into my mom's shower, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just cranking, and I'm cranking. And like after 20 minutes, I realize I don't think anything is happening. You see, I didn't read the instructions. There were revealed instructions of this is how it works. I was talking to my wife about it last night, and I was saying, yeah, I was working on it and cranking and cranking, and it just didn't work. And she was like, well, did you read the instructions? I was like, well, no. Um, now, to my credit, I couldn't get to the instructions. Have you ever gotten one of those bottles, you know, like a NyQuil or an allergy pill, and it says peel back for instructions? And you peel it back, and you kind of accidentally rip the whole thing to shreds, and you can't quite get to the instructions. It was like one of those kinds of, you know, I had to like peel it back, but I couldn't get to it, and I couldn't separate it. I was like, I'll just crank it. I'm just cranking it. Just cranking it. It's not working. There's like this little latch, this little lock you have to lock 
so that the crank actually works. And in my brain, I had to leave it open so that the cable could come out. No, you have to lock it so that it actually cranks. So I went to YouTube. I got some revealed knowledge, some revelation of how it actually works. And then I was able to tackle that uncertainty. Now, just to be clear, this is an analogy. YouTube is not revelation from God, okay? Instructions are not revelation from God. But this book, we call it the Bible, we'd say this is holy scripture. This is God-breathed. And so a phrase we say often is we study the Bible week after week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. God speaks to this word, and that's why we study this word. And so even when we come to strange parts, even when we come to portions of scripture, we call it apocalyptic, these prophetic visions, these kind of weird, artistic, strange foreign images, God is still speaking. So let's read from Daniel 8, starting in verse 1. He's going to start us off with a kind of futuristic vision. It's going to tell us that he's still living under the last ruler of Babylon, but in his vision, he's going to be shot forward into the next regime. He's going to be physically in his vision on the banks of this river that are in Persia. Okay, so just kind of set it up. It's going to give us a time date of I was, I was still in Babylon, and yet in the vision, I was fast-forwarded into Persia. Okay, so here it is. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, that's the one in Persia, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power." We'll stop there. We'll read the rest of the text as we move through the morning, but just kind of want to stop with that repeated phrase. There was no one that could rescue from his power. And this is the uncertainty that Daniel was looking into the future and seeing. Great kings, great nations, great empires that would rise up and no one could rescue from their power. No one could rescue from their power. He's speaking at an earthly level. As the vision unfolds, we'll see that there is one that can rescue. Right now, you might be facing something in your life, a form of uncertainty, a power that you don't think can be overcome. And God reveals to us that even when we're in the middle of something that no one can rescue us from, we have a God who reveals truth from heaven. We have a God who, as Daniel has continued to teach us again and again, we have a God who is always on the throne even in the worst of times. So that builds our faith, our faith to face 
uncertainty in this world. So let me pray for us. Ask God to help us to hear, because as I said, we, we just want to admit up front, this is culturally weird stuff, right? We don't understand all these symbols and visions of goats and rams, but, but God can still speak through his word. We believe he does. Let's ask his spirit to help us. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would reveal truth to us through these strange symbols and dreams and visions. We trust that you are with us. We've seen this most clearly in the gospel, God, that you came after us, you took our sin upon yourself, you give us your righteousness through the resurrection. So with that confidence through the cross, we come to even these more remote, more distant feeling parts of scripture, and we recognize that you're a God that comes to us in grace and in love and in forgiveness. We recognize that you are still on the throne, and we ask that you would teach us, your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we unfold these strange visions, again, the big idea is faith versus uncertainty. We're all facing uncertainty in many different ways. Daniel was in the midst of one regime after another, changing over governmental structures, changing. He was in one capital. He worked for one administration. Um, the, the writing was on the wall, right? And he knew things were going to change and that Belshazzar's reign was going to end and he knew Persia was going to take over. He didn't really know how all that was going to come out, but he kind of knew these things were coming, and in this vision, God transports him to the next administration, and then says, I'm going to even transport you hundreds of years in the future and show you even more revelation. So God is revealing his truth to Daniel in these uncertain times to build Daniel's faith. God does the same thing for us. He gives us his word to grow our faith, and as we unfold this package of Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see three things through Daniel that's going to help us to apply that in our world, right? The number one thing we'll see is that faith laments. Genuine faith laments. We see this in the example of Daniel. It's just going to be one uh, one little verse at the end, a couple other verses that imply it in this section, but chapter 9 next week, there's going to be a lot of it. So I'm kind of pulling in some of what we learned from chapter 9 into this chapter, but we see it at the very last verse of chapter 8 as well. Faith, real faith laments. Lament means to grieve. Real faith laments. The second thing we'll see is that faith trusts God's sovereignty. And we've defined that word. It's not a normal word for us to use in our everyday life, but sovereign means God is king. Sovereign. You know the word like reign, a king reigns, that's in sovereign. Sovereign. He reigns. He rules. God is king. Faith sees that. Faith trusts in that reality that that God is sovereign. And then finally, faith sees the end. Faith sees the end. The craziness will not go on forever. There's an end to it. There are short-term ends to these crazy things that are happening, and there's also a long-term end of everything that we look forward to where God makes all things right, okay? So in summary, faith laments, faith trusts God's sovereignty, and faith sees the end. So first of all, faith laments. I just want to kind of skip around this to get that. Um, the Really, the closing verse says it really strongly. After all of these dreams and visions were revealed to Daniel, if you look at the very last verse of Daniel chapter 8, it says in 8.27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Sometimes this is what God's Word does to you. Sometimes this is what studying theology and what's going to happen and what God's going to do it actually makes us sick. It actually overcomes us sometimes. He says, I was overcome. I lay sick for some days. Then, then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision 
and did not understand it. Um, we get the did not understand it thing, right? Like <laughs> a lot of times we read these sections of scripture and we're like, oh, this is appalling, I don't understand it, right? But there was also this much stronger portion of he was just, he was sickened. He couldn't even get out of bed. Faithful people grieve. Now again, this is, I think, taught more strongly in Daniel chapter 9. But here we see an example in Daniel. There's something really beautiful in the book of Daniel. Daniel is what we might call a Christ figure. Um, When you look at the Old Testament, most of our heroes in the Old Testament were failures like you and me. Most of them were strugglers who fell on their face, who did stupid things and struggled to have faith in God, who struggled to trust in God. And Daniel is one of the holiest characters in the Old Testament. He's like this one character who always kind of says and does the right thing. Now, we know he was actually a sinner, and again, again, we'll talk about this more next week. We know he wasn't perfect, but he was by far the holiest character in the Old Testament. Kind of the second up person that you could compare to Daniel in Old Testament stories is Joseph, another character who we see a little more hints of sin in Joseph's life. But these are two characters who in the Old Testament were very holy, and yet they were kind of these savior figures for their people. They, they point forward to what Jesus would be like. And we see Daniel, this very holy person, grieving. We see his heart being broken over the visions of conquering and sin and upheaval and all the things that are coming. That's an important thing for us to learn. Uh, in Daniel eight eighteen, as he's getting the vision, it says, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but then he touched me and made me stand up. So as the visions are being communicated to Daniel, they just overwhelm him. Like sometimes he just can't handle it. Again, we might want to think, Daniel is so holy, this would just be easy for him, right? Uh, sometimes we run into this in Christianity where we have this idea that because we know that God is conquering sin and evil, and we know everything's going to work out for good, that we should have kind of a fake happiness even when we're sad. And what I'm trying to say here is that we should be sad when we're sad. We should say, God, I'm sad. And that moves us to faith. God, I see you're conquering sin and evil. I see that you will be victorious in the end, but it's important for us to actually be sad when we're sad. The biblical phrase for this is lament. And then chapter 8, verse 10, this is just kind of one of the images of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 10, we see this evil person conquering and hurting people. And in verse 10, it says, it grew great, this leader, it grew great, even to the host of heaven and some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Um, Hard to know exactly what the symbolism here is. The the immediate thing we might think of is angels, like there's spiritual warfare. Again, we'll see in chapter 9 next week, there's real spiritual warfare going on here through the prayers of God's people. So heavenly vision, there's stuff happening in heaven that we can't fully comprehend when there's evil and good and things warring on the ground here on earth, right? And so we see this picture of like, even some of the hosts, even some of the angels are thrown down. Another symbol of the Old Testament this might mean is just God's people. God's people are sometimes seen as shining stars. That's a phrase um, used often in Daniel, as well as in the book of Philippians. God's saints are to shine like stars in a crooked generation, right? So God's people being thrown down and hurt. But just at a base level, part of what's going on here is when you go out at night, and the star and the moon, the stars and the moon are very bright. That gives us hope and encouragement, right? It's a beautiful thing. And so in his dream, in his vision, he's seeing stars torn down, right? 
what is the image at its most basic level? That's like, this is the depressing, terrible thing. I mean, that's, that's what this is. It's a depressing image of, of darkness and the created order being broken, right? Like an undoing of creation. So as we walk through our spiritual life, there are going to be things that we face that will feel like creation is moving backwards, not forwards, right? The world is falling apart. Sickness, hurricanes, natural disasters, broken relationships. These things are an undoing of the order that is supposed to be. It's not the way things are supposed to be. What are we supposed to do with that as Christians? Well, the biblical word for that is lament. One of Daniel's contemporaries, a guy that lived and ministered at the same time as him, is a prophet named Jeremiah. We started off our series with Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles. Jeremiah says this in his book named Lamentations. What does that mean? It's a whole book Jeremiah wrote together of uh, cries and tears and pain. Actually, I grabbed a picture of Jeremiah here. This is Michelangelo. This, was, uh, this is, is on the Sistine Chapel. Um, so it's supposed to be him kind of grieving and crying. He's known as the weeping prophet. So two prophets during the, the exile. You've got Daniel, who's kind of this like conquering prophet, right? Who everything seems to go well for him. And you've got Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And those are the two primary ways that God is revealing his truth during the exile. Well, Jeremiah says this in Lamentations 3.17. I have been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. Then I thought my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. So again, this is, this is a prophet of God saying, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm overwhelmed. Yet I have hope. Lamentations 3.22, because the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Amen. Some of us sang that song. Uh, There were some scripture songs that I grew up singing because the Lord's great love, His mercies are new every morning. So lament doesn't stay in lament, but you've got to start with lament if you're ever going to get to celebrating God's new mercies. Do you see that? A lot of times what we try to do in just coping with how hard life is, right? Life's hard for you, life's hard for me. Great way we've figured out as humans to cope with it. Humans are really smart. We say, let's just deny how hard it is. Entire religions have been built around the idea that sin and suffering is just an illusion and it doesn't really exist. Christianity says, no, it exists and it should break our hearts. And we should lament and we should grieve over it. So how do we apply this? Application for you is is reading the book of Lamentations by Jeremiah, not just reading the book of Lamentations, but actually praying the book of Lamentations. Also praying the Psalms. One of the most recommended books of the Bible by Christian counselors is the book of Psalms. As you're coping with difficulty, maybe abuse in your past or current trauma you're going through right now, praying through the Psalms helps us to see God's perspective in humans uh, reckoning with suffering, right? Helps train us to lament in a biblical way. Psalm 13 is a famous one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? A lot of us grew up in a spirituality where we thought it it wasn't okay to say things like that out loud, right? So I encourage you to pray these kind of prayers in your own prayer closet, but also begin to move that into your Christian community. 
uh, at our Join a Group page at Grace Bible Church. If you go to our page where we say Join a Group, we've been encouraging people to create groups of just two or three people where you would pray with one another and share Scripture with one another. In that little format, we've got five actions for three people. We call it three-by-five cards. And two of them are share your high for the week, but also share your low for the week, right? Like, we think that's part of Christian community, is celebrating with those who celebrate and weeping with those who weep. Share your struggles. Lament. This is something that Christians are supposed to practice. This is a mark of faith. Honest lament. Okay, the next thing that we see is that faith trusts God's sovereignty. And here, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of unpack some of the details of the vision in verses 8 through 25. And what we're going to see is we're going to see predictions of the future by God that were so specific that later critical scholars, those who doubt the Scripture's truthfulness, look back on it and say this could not have been written in the 5th century B.C., in the 6th century B.C., when Daniel was alive. It couldn't have been written that far back because it predicts the future too well. They look at it and they say, oh, this can't be true because we know that no one can predict the future. And this predicts the future with such clarity. It's amazing. So, Let's pick it up, uh, going back to verse 7. We'll pick it up in verse 7. In verse 7, again, we've got this uh, goat that comes and overwhelms the ram, right? He comes close to the ram. He's enraged. He struck him down. The ram had no power before him. He cast him down to the ground. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we've got these two beasts. We've got the goat and the ram. Uh, The ram stands for Media Persia, the next administration that Daniel's kind of walking into. And then he's getting visions of an administration or an empire that's going to happen even after his death, and that's the Greek Empire. They're kind of nobodies at this time, but they're going to rise up, and Alexander the Great is going to conquer the world with incredible, fierce speed that blows everyone away. And so last week in the visions, we had, uh, I'm going to call it a cheetah slash leopard last week, right? This very fast animal that with lightning fast speed conquers the world. Well, that animal is now represented by this goat that runs very quickly, right? She's got a ram, it's conquering, no one can rescue from the ram, and then all of a sudden we rise up with the goat, and the goat conquers with incredible speed, representing Alexander the Great. So let's read some more of the details. Verse 8, the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. What does that mean? Alexander the Great was exceedingly strong. Remember, horns always represent kings and leaders. He's torn down, and then you've got these other four leaders that rise up. And so this is exactly what happened in the unfolding of the leadership among the Greek empire. You had one great leader die, and then the other weaker leaders rise up, and they divide up the kingdom. Verse 9, out of one of them then came a little horn. So now there's another leader in the next line of leaders, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What is the glorious land? That's the land of God's people, Israel, right? It grew great, even to the host of heaven, some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them, right? So he's saying, again, we're not sure all the symbolism there. Something bad's happening, right? War is happening. He's throwing down either angels and spiritual warfare or just God's people, the holy ones that shine like stars. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Again, we're not sure exactly what this means. It's like he's greater than the leader of God's people, or he's rivaling himself with God, which is what this leader did actually in history. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. I had to practice saying that multiple times. I wanted to say Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. 
He becomes great. He's rivaling God himself. Verse 12, And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Transgression that makes desolate. That phrase is repeated in slight variations throughout the book of Daniel. We've heard the phrase repeated in the New Testament as the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that brings desolation, right? This is the um, offending, the blaspheming of the holy temple of God. And so we see it clearly happening through this conquering of Antiochus Epiphanes. He slaughters a pig, which was like the most offensive thing you could do and make sacrifices to false gods, set it up as a, as a temple to Zeus instead of to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. So he's very explicitly fulfilling this. And then we see secondary fulfillments, right? Later fulfillments, echoes of this in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I, not everybody believes this, but I believe that's foreshadowing this ultimate evil leader that we would sometimes call the uh, Antichrist or the man of lawlessness that is to come. And so you've kind of got these types and then future fulfillments, right? You've got these evil leaders clearly fulfilled. Another fulfillment, it's a little more fuzzy. Future fulfillments, we're a little less sure as we go off in the future. But what are we sure of, right? We don't have to be so worried about which leader fulfills the evil in which way, right? What are we sure of? Remember what we learned about end times? God wins. That's what we're sure of. And that's what we rest our faith in. Faith trusts God's sovereignty. So a God that can predict these things in meticulous detail, we begin to say, huh, maybe I should pay attention to His Word. If God knows the future, maybe God really is on the throne. Maybe God really does control the universe. Maybe God is a king that I can trust in His power. So it goes on, verse 13. They heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over the sanctuary, the host to be trampled underfoot? Verse 14, he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is another kind of uh, echo or double fulfillment. A lot of the other... Um, things that are prophesied in the future are seven years. This is approximately six and a half years, right? And in these kind of symbolic things, they often are you know, rounding up and rounding down to symbolic numbers like seven. So this is almost seven years. When you go back and study the history of the violations of Antiochus Epiphanes, it lines up exactly with this number of days. We have a lot of historical documents where you can verify this and say, this lines up perfectly for the offenses that he committed Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So we're thinking this is the son of man again from the previous visions. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So we think this is the son of man calling to Gabriel, this lead angel, and saying, help him understand, explain it to him. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Talk more about that in our last point about faith seeing the end. Verse 18, When he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. 
Now, I've had professors and teachers that have made me fall asleep, right? Um, And sometimes that's because they're boring. This is not that. This is someone speaking truth that is like more than a human being can handle, right? And that's an amazing tension that we wrestle with as the people of God, right? There's this reality in which we can know truth and God speaks truth to us. And then there's another side to it where it's like we are frail, we are finite, and it's like we can't handle the truth, right? That's why whenever we study God's Word, I encourage you to do this even when you're reading the Bible on your own, we ask for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to help us receive the truth. We have rebellious hearts that want to resist the truth. We're weak and frail, fleshly creatures that can't always handle the truth, right? And we see this even again in this great, holy, great man of God. The, the voice of God is teaching him, angels revealing things to him, and it's like it just knocks him out, right? He can't take it. He just lands on his face. But he touched me, it says, and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Again, a reference to the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So sometimes when we're looking at these visions, we're like, well, that sure seems like Media and Persia. What about this time? This time, we're just told straight up, yeah, that's Media and Persia. That's the next great empire. Verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. Again, we're told explicitly. We might not have been sure otherwise. And so this then helps us kind of backtrack and interpret into these other visions that have been seen in chapter 2 and in chapter 7 last week. 22, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. That was one of the the mottos. That was one of the bumper stickers that Antiochus Epiphanes used for himself, that he was this great leader that could understand riddles. That was what he said about himself. He was someone who would unlock mysteries. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Again, remember, part of why Daniel is lamenting and grieving is because he's singing into the future and he's seeing that the saints, his people, we, his people will be destroyed, will be hurt. That brings real grief to Daniel. And so he says, they'll be destroyed, verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. Now, we've already heard that phrase twice. You know, it wasn't human power. It was God's power. It wasn't human power. This kind of phrase is appearing in that last several verses again and again, and it ends here with verse 25. He'll, in the end, he'll be broken, but by no human hand. And this is a really important concept that we'll look at as we see that faith sees the end, that ultimately the evil will be destroyed. The evil will be destroyed. And so again, big point for this section is that faith trusts in God's sovereignty. When we look at God's predictions of the future, we see God is big enough, God is powerful enough that he can predict the future. God is a God that we can trust with the details of our future. Do you trust in God's sovereignty? And here's an irony. Often I've seen people struggle 
with God's sovereignty in a way that they say, God is so sovereign, God is so great, God is so powerful that I'm going to sit back and not do anything. Have you ever seen that? Do you have that temptation in your own heart? I see it a lot in prayer, right? Well, God knows everything, so why do I have to tell him? There's this great phrase in one of the C.S. Lewis stories that says, I think he wants you to ask, right? It's this hero that, that knew they needed help, and they're like, should we ask him for help? But he knows we need help, right? I think he likes for you to ask for help. That's the way God set up the universe and our relationship with him. And so when we see God's bigness, instead of that making us turn from God and say, God's got this, I'm going to sit and not do anything, it should make us pursue God more. Trusting in God's sovereignty means talking to God. Trusting in God's sovereignty means reading God's word. That's what it looks like. We've got to resist the temptation to say, God is sovereign, so that means he doesn't care what I do. No, God's sovereignty is him ruling and reigning and saying, I want you now to live out my image in the world. What does it look like for you and for me to be sovereign over whatever sphere of influence he's given us? To rule and reign, to reflect his image, to make wise choices, to love and serve others in the ways that Jesus shows us washing feet, but also to rule with righteousness, to make good and godly decisions, to stand up for what is good and true. What would it look like for us to do that in our personal sphere of influence? Well, again, if we trust in God's sovereignty, we're going to constantly be running to him and saying, God, what do I do? God, how do I do this? God, will you help me? We call that prayer, right? I grab a picture of someone praying. I've got someone with praying hands over a Bible, right? When you think of God's sovereignty, I want you to translate it into this image. I want that to be burned into your brain. Too often, when people talk about God's sovereignty, we run off into philosophical debates, right? Like, how meticulously does God control the future and present circumstances? The Bible doesn't ask us to go into those details. The Bible just says, trust him. Trust that God is king. And what does it look like to trust him? It looks like we're going to talk to him more. If God is really king, if God is really sovereign over the future of, of our world and our nation and future nations, then we're going to talk to him. And we're going to read his word. We're going to pay attention to what he has to say. That's what God is inviting us into. He's asking us to trust his sovereignty. And again, next week, we'll see this really clearly. Daniel gets a revelation. He gets this little uh, scrap maybe of Jeremiah's prophecies. Maybe he has all Jeremiah's prophecies. We're not sure, but he's reading Jeremiah's prophecies and he realizes like, oh, the 70 years is almost complete. What does that do for Daniel? The time is almost over. It drives him to pray. It drives him to seek God's face. It's a beautiful example. So we should be a people of prayer. We should be a people of Bible reading, and that's a way that we show that we're actually trusting God's sovereignty. One of my favorite prayer books that I recommend a lot is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I've recommended this a million times. One of my favorite little sections contrasts our cynicism where we back away from God and we back away from engaging with the world. It contrasts that with an engaged praying life. And this is how Miller says it in his book, A Praying Life. To be cynical is to be distant yet it offers a false intimacy of being in the know, right? We're tempted as modern people to say, yeah, I'm too smart to try hard, right? I'm so smart, I'm going to step off and stand on the sidelines in life and not engage because I know the world's all going to pot anyway. No, that's cynicism. 
Cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. A praying life is just the opposite of that kind of cynicism. A praying life, you hear this? A praying life is the opposite of cynicism. Cynicism backs out. A praying life rushes towards God. A praying life engages evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was always in God's face, always hoping, always dreaming, always asking. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. If you and I trust in God's sovereignty, we will be a praying people. We will talk to God. You talk to God in time you set aside, formally. You talk to God informally. God, help me. God, what do I do? Talk to God. Pray. Seek His face because He is King. And listen to Him talking to you by studying His Word, by memorizing His Word, by reading His Word. Okay, the last point is that faith sees the end. Faith sees the end. Again, I want to just kind of skip through here. Faith sees the end. Look at verse 13. We'll reread verse 13 and 14. It says in verse 13 and 14, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So here again, most scholars see this as really being fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, and there was an end. But this reminds us of how God operates, that that sin is allowed to run its course, that evil men are allowed to do evil things, but there's going to be an end to it. God's going to finish it, right? And we look forward to an ultimate end of all sin and of all death and of all evil. Skip ahead now to verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 and 19. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. So again, he was just overwhelmed. Verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So again, remember, in real time, Daniel's having revealed to him horrible things that are coming. Evil kings rising up. Beasts coming out of the sea, we saw last week, right? Monsters are coming, but they will be defeated. There is an end. When we're in the middle of suffering, right? When you're fi- uh, facing cancer or you're going through a horrible breakup or you're losing your job or you're facing some other kind of physical weakness or you're facing uncertainty politically out in our world it can feel like it's just going to go on forever faith sees the end faith sees that though we live in the midst of sin and brokenness now god is finishing it we're going through a process and there's an end to come now finally let's look at verses 25 and 26 Verse 25 and 26, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper. This is this evil king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, we think he's a foreshadowing of the ultimate Antichrist. But this king shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he'll destroy many. He'll even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. There again is that phrase, he'll be broken, but by no human hand. In real history, Antiochus Epiphanes was killed, but not by an arrow, not by a sword. He had an accident, had a bunch of internal injuries, and died by, quote-unquote, no human hand. Often in the Old Testament, Scripture assigns what we would call randomness or chance 
to the hand of God, God himself. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. It's this idea of there will be closure. There will be an end to these things. Again, the end of immediate sin and death and brokenness is a foreshadowing and a reminder to us of like, oh, okay, this horrible thing is over. That reminds me that overall sin and death and evil will come to an end. Do you see that? The two things work together. Same way that prophecy says, here's this thing that's going to happen. It's going to happen in the next couple hundred years. But then there are these other prophecies that look forward to future fulfillment. Same way we see there's a closure. There's an end to these sinful, terrible, evil things that renews our faith so that our faith can see the ultimate end to all things. Being face-to-face with Jesus. God wiping away every tear from our eyes. This phrase, he shall be broken, but by no human hand, is an echo of this terminology that's used throughout the Old Testament. By no human hand. It's this idea of God doing something. Um, It was used also in Daniel chapter 2, right? The vision of the different kingdoms, and it was kingdoms represented by a statue with gold and silver and bronze. I have that picture again of the the various kingdoms represented in the statue. And then there's this stone that rolls down and cuts the feet out from underneath the statue. Remember that stone starts small, but then it grows and becomes like a mountain. Jesus uses these phrases and talks about his coming kingdom as like a mustard seed, tiny seed that then grows to be a gigantic garden plant that birds will nest in. He talks about it as leaven, right? Leaven is invisible. We can't see it with our eyes, but it works through and makes the dough expand, makes the bread puff up. Similar to this vision here. There's God's working that at first might seem imperceptible. This guy was defeated. He was broken, yet by no human hand. Throughout the New Testament, that is played out in the image like in Ephesians, where it says that we're circumcised, we're made holy. Circumcision was this Old Testament ritual of holiness, cutting of the human flesh, right? That is spiritually done now through Christ by no human hand. That's the way the phrase is used in the New Testament. We're now saved. We're now made whole by no human hand. It's a contrast that we see repeatedly through Scripture. There are things that man can accomplish. What can man accomplish? Well, man on his own strength can follow the serpent and become like monsters and do evil to one another. That's what we do by our own flesh. But when we trust in no human hand, when we trust in God's working, when we trust in the end that God is bringing about, we call that faith. Faith sees the end. Faith sees the end that God is going to judge all evil. And if we trust in him, he will forgive us and give us the righteousness of Christ himself. So what does this look like for us personally? Um, Number one, I think it changes our attitude through suffering. Since we see the end that's coming, we have an attitude of not completely belittling our suffering, right? Because our first point was faith laments. We're going to cry, right? If you hurt, you're going to cry. Actually, I got stung by a bunch of bees or they might have been murder hornets. I'm not sure, but I survived. Um, got stung really bad yesterday. I came in and I was like, ah, oh, it hurt so bad. And I was like, you know, like they got in my shirt and I'm ripping my shirt out and running in. My, <laughs> my wife's like, you know, sees me acting like a crazy person coming into the house. She started asking me about it. And she's like, did you cry? Did you say, did you cry? Or did you want to cry? She said, did you cry? 
It's like, what? No, of course not. Anyway, so I don't believe in crying when I'm attacked by murder hornets, but we should when we face hard things, right? We should cry. We should say, this is hard. Faith does lament. We do honestly grieve. But then, next step, faith sees the end. We see where this is going. We pick ourselves up. We put some baking soda on the sores that the murder hornets have put on us, right? And we, we move forward like it's going to be okay because I'm headed for a future where the God of the universe is going to wipe away every tear. There will be no mourning, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. That's what we're headed for. Faith sees that end. It sees that future. So Paul can say in Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Again, that doesn't give us permission to like belittle our friend's pain, right? Your friend is crying. You don't go, oh, sufferings now aren't worth comparing to the future. You know, that's not what you say. You cry with your friend. You spend time in the dirt and the ashes with them. And then we say, but I see the end. What we're going through right now is not worth comparing. Suffering right now is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. That changes our attitude as we see the end through faith. It also makes us humble. One of my favorite passages about this kind of humility is in Philippians 3. I just encourage you to read it on your own time, but in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, Paul does this play on words with the Greek word end. The Greek word end is telos. And it's translated in the New Testament in English, in our English versions, as end, perfect, maturity, and complete. Those are the four English words, right? And so Paul does this play on words. You'll have to go back and read it because the English translations mix up the words, so it might throw you off the trail. But what he's saying is, we recognize those of us who have arrived at the end, those of us who are mature, have this attitude that we're not really mature and we haven't really arrived at the end yet. This is paradox of Christian faith. We call this humility. Humility is God loves me perfectly in Jesus. God absolutely delights in me because of what Jesus does. This is incredible boldness. But in reality, I haven't fully lived up to that yet. I don't perfectly obey all the time. I don't live with full joy every moment. So I know I haven't really arrived. I'm not at the end yet, but I can see it by faith. I see God in the end saying, well done, wiping the tears from my eyes, embracing me in love. I see the end that we're headed for by faith in Jesus, by what Jesus has done for me. Yet I don't fully live it out now. And so Paul closes that section with his play on words by saying this. It says, only live, let us live up to what we have already attained. Only let us live up to what we've already attained, right? Live up now to the end, the future that God is taking you into by faith in Jesus. We'll stop there. Conclusion. When we're facing uncertainty, we can still have faith. How? Well, God reveals his truth to us. In this section with Daniel, it was bizarre dreams. God reveals even clearer truth to us through Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, was facing uncertainty. He was facing separation from God the Father. He was facing absorbing the wrath of uh, humanity on his back, right? Just all this evil and sin and brokenness, the wrath of God for all that humanity owed, piling up on him. 
all sin, all brokenness. That's what he was facing. And he was sweating drops of blood, we're told in the Gospels. That's real lamenting. That's real grief. Yet he entrusted himself to the Father's sovereignty. He said, Father, if there's any other way, take the suffering from me, yet not my will, your will be done. See that? His real lament drove him to trust in the Father's sovereignty, entrusting himself to God being king, praying, talking to him about it, trusting the plan. And Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He faced the shame of the cross, not because the cross was joyful, but because of the joyful of the end that we're coming to, the reunion, where we get to see him face to face, where we get to be with him. He loved you and me that much. He did this for us. So when we're facing uncertainty, when we're facing uncertainty with health and pandemics, we're facing uncertainty politically, we can look to God's revelation and say, God loves me. I deserve judgment, but he gave me Jesus. He took my sins. I I deserve punishment, but Jesus took the punishment for me. That's what I want you to see, and that's what I want me to see, and we will live with joy as we have more of that faith in the midst of these uncertain times. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you that you have saved us through Christ. It's finished, and you are saving us as we walk this out in reality. As Paul says, we recognize we're not at the end yet, but the way that we live out being at the end is is recognizing that and continuing to pursue you, Paul says. We forget what's behind. We strain towards the goal, which is Christ Jesus. God, help us to strain towards you. Help us to pursue you. Help us not to be cynical in difficult times, but help us to be joyful, running towards our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.